1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
0: And I'm April Glazer.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, Partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We have a special show this week. We'll be taking a deep look into gerrymandering and the highly specialized mapping technology that has allowed political parties, especially the GOP starting in 2010, to drastically change the way political districts are drawn and controlled.
0: We'll be speaking with David Daly, who wrote a book about gerrymandering. And this interview, by the way, was recorded on March 13th. So no news or tabs this week, but we'll be back to our regular schedule the next week. Our guest today is David Daly. He's a senior fellow at FairVote, a national electoral reform organization. He's also a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia and was formerly the editor in chief at Salon. He's also the author of Rat Fucked, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. David, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Gerrymandering is not new. It's been around for decades. Uh, and it's been contentious for probably about as long as it's been around. Um, but it seems like it's kind of gotten a boost from a lot of high tech, you know, inventions over the past decade or so. Uh, and particular the GOP has done stuff with this. Maybe we can just open up by set, like kind of explaining what types of technologies are used to redistrict.
2: The folks who are drawing these lines are using very sophisticated gis mapping systems most of them are using a program called maptitude
0: it's a great name
2: <laughs> it really is right yeah. um and maptitude comes preloaded with all of the census data you could possibly imagine so everything from gender and economics and ethnicity and commuting times religion anything you might possibly want to know has been uploaded into for you. You can also then take all of the other data sets that are available. So public records, whether it's a driver's license registrations, voter registrations, gun license registrations, and add all of that into Maptitude. And then there's all of the private data sets that you can purchase, whether it's a cloud's worth of consumer preferences, whether it's a social media and web search information whether it's magazine subscriptions and all of this can get added into the mix as well so when the map makers sit down to draw these funny looking districts they know precisely what they're doing because they they have such a clear view almost down to the house by house method as far as who lives there and how they vote and so these lines that look so strange on a map correspond almost precisely to the partisan wishes of the folks who are drawing these lines.
0: And so I'm, I'm just a little confused. Who actually would own the Maptitude program? I mean, redistricting and gerrymandering, that's done through elections and, and, and through uh, legislative processes or, or bodies, right? And so it, are these owned by the partisan machines? Like, who, who owns the software?
2: Well, it's a little bit different state by state. Essentially, in about 40 out of 50 states, it's the state legislature that plays the dominant role in map making. So, most of the times, it becomes the state legislature that goes off and licenses Maptitude from the uh, Caliper Corporation, which is based outside of Boston. And they pay, you know, multiple thousands of dollars for every license. And then they, uh, they turn over laptops preloaded with all of the software and the data to their consultants who are in charge of map making mm-hmm. and sometimes the states will hire you know specialized uh, political uh, demographers there are an army of firms on both the democratic side and the republican side that specialize in generating really sophisticated partisan voting indexes based on all of the public and private information that is available and then translating that through a GIS a mapping system like Maptitude into really difficult to defeat a district lines.
1: So will the two parties in a given state be running their own versions of Maptitude with their own data sets? For instance, if I'm the Republican Party in Ohio, uh, you know, maybe Ohio's a bad example because there have been redistricting reform efforts there. But but if I'm the Republican Party in a given state, I might try to get data from some third party vendor that only my party can use to try to help it draw the lines. And then the Democrats might be working with some other sources of data to get to get an edge.
2: Yes, absolutely. Except what the Republicans did in 2010 was they had an electoral plan that set them up to be in complete control of the map making in
1: all of these states. This was that project called Red Map that you've talked about, right?
2: Yes. It's it's short for the a redistricting majority project. Mm-hmm. And essentially what the Republicans did, because the laws are different, governing a redistricting in every state, Republicans just surveyed the, the scene and they said, okay, what do we have to do to have complete control of the process in as many states as possible? especially in these crucial redistricting states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, a lot of the uh, battleground states that were uh, going to gain or lose a member of Congress. So it became especially important uh, to have all of those seats on the table because an entirely new map was going to be drawn in all of those states. So they spent a lot of money on, on both uh, governor's races and state legislative races in 2010 in order to ensure that they had essentially unfettered control of this process in all of the states. So if the Democrats had a seat at the table, both sides could have drawn their partisan maps and they might have been pushed to some kind of of compromise or forced into the courts. But because the Republicans had complete control of the process in all of these states. Um, And because they understood that winning the elections in 2010 was only the first piece of this plan, that the second and most important piece of this plan was dispatching their consultants to state capitals in 2011 to help actually draw these maps in all of these states. Um, And they invested in the technology side um, and in the consultants and they were really did a better job of understanding how the data game had changed and how it could be translated into huge and durable political majorities over the course of this entire decade.
1: And so one upshot of that was the huge landslide in the state houses by the Republican Party uh, that we've seen in the past uh, five to 10 years. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. Um, Uh, There's a a famous op-ed by Karl Rove in in the Wall Street Journal in March of of 2010, which somehow the Democrats just didn't even see, in in which Rove lays out that Republicans wanted to win 107 key state legislative races in 16 states. And that if they did that, they would have the power to draw 193 of the 435 U.S. House seats completely on their own without any Democrats in the room at all. So, while Republicans won many more seats that year, it was around 700, um, a modern record. What mattered was that they had focused on those 107, and that's what really gave them the power to execute this plan uh, state after state. And then beginning in 2012, you can really see the impact of this on the politics of all of these swing states. So, in Wisconsin, for example, which is a really a terrific uh, test case because it's at the uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court uh, right now. This is this is the uh, case of Gill versus Whitford. Um, Republicans uh, snuck off into their map room and they broke the state down into six thousand different wards, and they calculated a complex partisan uh, voting index for each of those six thousand wards. And then they assembled their maps so that they would be able to get upwards of 60 percent of the seats, even in years in which they only had in the low 40s of the actual aggregate vote total.
0: Right. And, and this kind of arguably, say, gave rise to Trump or helped to give
2: rise to Trump. You could make that case. What toxic partisan gerrymandering does at its absolute worst is create so many uncompetitive districts that it essentially puts the base of the party the the most extreme folks in the party in charge on both sides because it makes the only election that that matters the uh, primary election so it incentivizes politicians not to compromise Um, and republicans created so many of these uncompetitive districts for themselves starting off in 2012, that it changes the nature and the composition of the Republican caucus. It begins to elect people like Mark Meadows, who is the chairman of the Freedom Caucus now, and Meadows is elected out of a district in North Carolina that the Republicans uh, take the city of Asheville and they crack it in half, essentially, in order to elect an additional Republican from the the western part of the state, so it's a district that had elected a Democrat all of those years. But in order to elect a Republican, they take Asheville and and they split it between two very conservative districts. And when the base is in charge, you get a different tone and tenor of our politics. Republicans essentially had to lie to their base over all of these years about what they would be able to do in Washington. They kept uh, promising that they would repeal Obamacare, knowing that there was a Democrat in the White House who wasn't going to do that. So uh, by 2016, you've got 17 different presidential candidates in the race for the Republican nomination. uh, And the Republican base has had enough of all of these senators and governors and famous last names. And they go off and they nominate Donald Trump. The other thing that all of these gerrymandered legislatures do is they have moved very quickly to add voter id laws Mm -hmm. to end the number of 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 early voting days to make it harder to uh, register to vote in many of these swing states so i mean donald trump wins the electoral college by eighty thousand votes in three states uh three uh, very gerrymandered states of pennsylvania michigan and uh, wisconsin all of which had enacted you know, some kind of measures making it harder to vote. Uh, can we say that gerrymandering led to Trump? No, I think that, that, that that's probably too, uh, too, uh, reductive. too. generous or too reductive, right? But it's certainly among the, the, the factors.
0: We're going to take a short break. More of our interview with David Daly in just a moment. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
1: As we've seen this wave of really blatant gerrymandering efforts, which are using advanced technology and census data and algorithms and all that sort of thing to shift the boundary lines in favor of one party or another, we've also, of course, seen a growing public awareness of that, and there's been a public backlash. We've seen redistricting reform efforts in several states, some via ballot initiatives. I believe California was one of those. We've seen courts in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, correct me if I've got the details wrong here, uh, throw out the, the maps for various reasons. How have those reform efforts played out, and how does technology come into play when you do institute a system where there are requirements to draw fairer boundaries in one way or another?
2: The very technology that has made these gerrymanders possible has also made it easier for us to identify them, to uncover them, and possibly to come up with a constitutional standard that could fix this problem once and for all. If you go back to the last time that the Supreme Court it took up the uh, case of partisan gerrymandering, it was another case out of Pennsylvania. Um, and Justice Kennedy was again the swing vote, just as he is likely in the Wisconsin and, and Maryland cases that are up now. Um, and Kennedy, while he sided with the conservatives in this case and didn't believe that a standard existed at that point in time for partisan gerrymandering, What he understood back then was that technology is both a threat and a promise. And what he wrote in his decision was that new technologies may produce new methods of analysis that make more evident the precise nature of the burdens gerrymanders impose. And that is what these really impressive statistical programs and supercomputers that are able to generate, for example, Tens of thousands of sample districts, uh, sample maps. And that's exactly what reformers and scholars have been able to do. You could take all of the redistricting criteria in a given state, you could enter all of this information into a supercomputer, and it could instantly run, say, 20 or 25,000 different maps. And then the, the The courts are able to look at this and say, oh, the actual plan that was passed is a wild statistical outlier compared to all of the other maps. So there are all kinds of new ways that technology makes it possible to see these gerrymanders, and it makes it possible for regular people now to essentially go off and run their own maps. As well, so there's a lot of danger heading into this 2020 cycle of redistricting, but a lot of new opportunity as well.
1: Yeah, and I've actually there, there's at least one tool that I've played with online where you you can, as just a regular citizen, try to draw your own maps using at least some of the data, probably not all the data that it's available to the to the major parties when they do this. Uh, what? I found fascinating about that this, and it's it's actually something that parallels a lot of what we talk about on this show when it comes to big tech platforms, is we all sort of intuitively think we have an idea of what fair districts should look like. I mean, they they certainly shouldn't look like those crazy skinny Oddly shaped monstrosities that we've seen in several states that you know that start in one city and then reach 80 miles into the countryside and they're only two miles wide and then they you know branch off in several directions. Um, so, but but it turns out that there are a lot of competing potential values that you could be trying to optimize for when you draw a district. I know that there are there are some Cs right. There's compactness of a district. There's contiguity, meaning that it's you know it's not spread out all over the place. There's uh, competitiveness is potentially a value. You you might be trying to optimize for. I know in California, some of the redistricting efforts there have been lauded for making elections more competitive than they used to be. But it's not—it's not totally obvious, is it? Which of those values really constitute fair, fair districts?
2: I mean, another C is communities of interest, and and how many of those are you able to keep together? How many counties are you able to keep together? So, a lot of these uh, various. Values are really in tension with one another. I mean, oftentimes, if you want a map that is compact, that map might not be a competitive map. That map might be a packed map because of the way Democrats, um, for example, live largely in cities. So I certainly think that as a nation, we have to have a conversation about what values we want to see in districting.
1: All right, one last break. More If Then in just a minute.
0: So you said earlier on that the data that's you know used in these systems goes well beyond census data. You know things like commute times and uh, you know all kinds of of tiny details about people's lives. Where do they get that data exactly? Is it private companies? I mean, how are they are they buying it from somebody here in Silicon Valley?
2: You would be amazed, first of all, just at how much is in the is in the census. I sat down with a map maker who drew the districts in Arizona and he opened up maptitude and showed me just the hundreds and hundreds of different fields that they're able to go through with just precise granular data all the way down to a census block level which is really the the smallest uh, a level and essentially that's that's the, the the boundary of a of a city block so all of that is very public there's a lot of of public databases um whether that's voter registrations, or whether it's voting turnout, you can tell a lot simply by uploading the years in which people vote. Do they only vote in presidential years? Do they come out in midterms and local elections? You can use all of that information. But an awful lot of this definitely is coming from Silicon Valley. Now, we know that as we dance across the internet day by day, we are leaving hundreds of clues as to who we are and what we like and what we buy and what we are searching for. And most of that is ending up in some marketing database someplace, and that can all be sold. Um, And So uh, these maps have the uh, potential to be drawn by people who are looking at all of this information and who really, when they move a line, know who they are moving in and out of a district, and how these people are likely to vote. Because we are more polarized than ever. And that makes us more predictable than ever.
0: And, you know, finally, I'm curious, is there any room for regulation here or reform here? You know, is there even kind of uh, the civic scaffolding to address this?
2: I think we're beginning to see the civic scaffolding built. Um I think I think voters and courts can use this technology to try and uh, democratize that we can push back. You have seen it in North Carolina, Wisconsin, in Maryland, where these key lawsuits have moved forwards. There are incredibly powerful movements underway in Ohio and Michigan and North Carolina and Florida, even in uh, South Dakota and Utah, where folks are agitating for reform and for change you've seen the power of the independent commissions in California to lead to um, a more competitive and fairer districts there there's a model that can be replicated elsewhere but I also think that there is a hunger now as well for new systems and new ways of voting I think I think what you just have seen in Maine uh, for example the the a demand in Maine for a uh, ranked choice voting that will be used in June in the primaries to determine candidates for uh, Congress and statewide offices like governor. Um, the voting technology is improving as well, and it makes these kinds of instant runoffs possible. Um, and all of this improves and magnifies our voice and our choices. Um, so uh, all of this technology can certainly be used for good, um, except we the people have to you know stand up and force that.
0: David, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David.
0: And that is our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next week by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at com.
1: You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Azer. Thanks again to our guest, David Daly. You can find him on Twitter at DaveDaily3.
0: And if you like the show, please help us spread the word about it. We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a comment or a review or both on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks.
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU Studios in Santa Barbara.
0: And thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley. We'll see y'all next week.
1: Bye.